when I see things like the crossing structure that's going in just north of Los Angeles for mountain lions and bobcats and other species, it's a sign to me that humanity finally gets that it's impacting nature and essentially impacting us. People talk about the three C's of rewilding being core areas, carnivores, and crucially, corridors. Today I'm talking to Jody Hilty from one of the biggest corridor creation projects in the world, known as Yellowstone to Yukon. Jody and her colleagues are working to piece habitat back together along 3,000 kilometers of the western side of North America. Yellowstone to Yukon truly is one of the most enormous and extraordinary rewilding projects in the world. Jody, thank you so much for joining this Rewilding the World podcast with me, Ben Goldsmith. How did you come to work at Yellowstone to Yukon? Where did it all start for you? Well, maybe it's destiny. I don't know. I uh, started off my career as a wildlife corridor ecologist. That means that what I was looking to understand is how wildlife moved from one habitat or protected area to another through a sea of humanity. And that was in 1996. So um, I first served as a scientist on the board of the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative. And then a few years after that, they were looking for a new president. And um, they called me up and said, hey, are you interested? And it was just perfect timing for me. And I really think that the Yellowstone to Yukon or Y2Y vision is extraordinary. It's ambitious. It's audacious. And the thing is, is that it's doable. We're showing demonstrable progress. And how did it start that initiative and when? Yeah, it started in the early 1990s and the co-founders were both American scientists and conservationists and Canadian conservationists and scientists. And it was really because of the advent of new technologies for studying wildlife. So we put these GPS collars on animals like wolves and grizzly bears around that time. And those are devices that can track an animal really regularly every 10 minutes or every hour. And all of a sudden, it illuminated this new world for us. We were able to see that while protected areas are important, that they're not sufficient. So for example, there was this wolf named Pluey, and she was collared just south of Banff National Park. She took a 100 thousand square kilometer jaunt. She went across two countries. She went across three states, two provinces, and about 30 different jurisdictions from private lands to different kinds of public lands to indigenous reserves, etc. And then she and her pups were legally harvested just south of Kootenai National Park in British Columbia. And so you know, we asked, like, what did that show us? It showed us that we're not doing conservation at the scale that matters to these wide-ranging animals. And that was really the basis for thinking about this huge vision. This is the place in North America from, like you said, Wyoming all the way to the Arctic Circle where we still have all these big animals. And the only way that we're going to be able to keep them on the landscape as we continue to see humans moving to the region and increasing human activity is to make sure that we have big enough protected areas and that they're connected. 
Yeah, the three C's people talk about in rewilding, which is the the cores, the corridors, and the carnivores. Yes. In British speak, um, famous review by John Lawton, who was asked by a government 13 or 14 years ago to figure out how we can restore nature here on this island. And he summed it up with bigger, better, and more joined up, which of course we haven't really <laughs> done much of in Britain, although it seems to be starting now. So that's a distance of what, a thousand kilometers from Yellowstone in Wyoming all the way up to Yukon? It's about uh, 3,200 kilometers. So it's a truly vast continental landscape. And to what extent is the landscape divided up currently? What are the obstacles? Because in my mind, I think of the Rockies and I think of kind of one of the last great wildernesses on Earth. But I presume it's already divided up to some degree already. Yeah, so we have sort of the far north, places like in the Northwest Territories and in the Yukon, and that's still pretty vast wilderness. Our job is to keep it that way. There are increasing mega mines and roads going in up there, and we have to make sure we get that right. In the middle section, it's an area that really is sort of just beginning to fragment, and so our job is to keep it connected And then in the southern part of the region, from, say, Yellowstone National Park up to the border and a little bit beyond, that's an area where it's already heavily fragmented. And our job is to reconnect it or rewild it, as you say. And so linear infrastructure, rail lines and roads would be the obvious infrastructure that gets in the way of wildlife movement. So the the answer to that is crossings, right? That certainly is one of the big barriers and crossings is really important. And, you know, we're really lucky here when we started, when that vision was created in 1993 to connect and protect this area for people in nature to thrive, there were zero wildlife crossing structures across roads. Today, there's 117 crossing structures. There's one going in just east of my office here in Canmore that my daughter, Remy, calls mom's traffic jam because when they're actually constructing it, it does slow down traffic. Uh, But it'll be the first overpass in Alberta outside of a national park, and it'll be part of more than 50 wildlife crossing structures on the Trans-Canada Highway, a really important highway certainly for humans, but unfortunately bisects parks like Banff National Park. And so we had to mitigate it. And, and what's the trick to, in, in designing these things so that wildlife actually uses them in terms of size or like why don't they still run in front of traffic 100 yards down the road? Yes. So there's a few tricks. In fact, the Banff Wildlife Crossing structures um, in Banff National Park, there's uh, over 40 of them. There's a combination of overpasses and underpasses. So the first thing that they looked at was how long does it take for wildlife to figure out that they're there? And the structures are designed so that there's fencing in between the structures. So it essentially directs wildlife to potential crossing structures. Turns out, It takes many years for wildlife to really start to use them regularly. The second thing that we learned is that some animals use them differently. So, and even within a species. So for example, if you're a mama grizzly bear with cubs, you're only going to use overpasses. If you're a male bear, you might take more risks. So you might use an underpass, but this is really important, right? Because if you want true demographic connectivity of bears, You need both females and males moving across. What we found, they're incredibly effective. So for hooved animals like deer and elk and moose, we've seen more than a 96% reduction 
in wildlife vehicle collisions, keeping both wildlife and people safe. And has there been some sort of um, uh, evidence gathering to identify the number of lives that have been saved, the amount of money that's been saved by these overpasses? And is that publicly available? Yes. And in fact, if we look at the, from an economic standpoint, for society as a whole, putting in wildlife crossing structures where there's high vehicle animal collisions actually saves society money. It's pretty incredible. I was on the board of the environment department here for five years. And and one of the things that I raised in a meeting that I was lucky enough to have with treasury officials was that Highways England should be given some funding to build wildlife crossings. And the idea was shot down in the space of about 10 seconds on the basis that, well, we don't have wildlife here. Well, of course, we do have wildlife here. We have deer and we're returning animals such as beavers and wild boar have made their way back into Britain by accidental and deliberate releases and so on. So we do have wildlife, but the idea has never, I think we have two in all of the United Kingdom, but on the continent in Belgium and Netherlands and Germany, France and Spain, I counted three in one drive between Madrid and Salamanca not so long ago. They are going up these structures. Yeah. And it seems to me basic common decency as well as um, economic savvy to build these things. And and Isabella Tree in her book Wilding points out that it's not just the carnage of wildlife on the roads, but it's also the more pernicious effect of genetic isolation. Um, And I I, I read recently that further south in Los Angeles, a a wildlife crossing is going up to help cougars mingle with uh, the wider cougar population out of the city. Yes. Yes. It's really incredible. You know, I'm uh, really optimistic right now about the future of conservation. There were just global meetings that happened in December um, called the COP15 Nature Conference or the Convention for Biological Diversity. And what came out of there was amazing, truly ambitious. And what it said to me is that the world society of humans all understand now that we need nature. And nature needs us and that we need to get to conserving about 30% of nature by 2030 on the way to what nature really needs, which is probably something more than that. They had very ambitious uh, goals around uh, reconnecting landscapes, keeping landscapes connected, and also restoration. It's really exciting. And so when I see things like the crossing structure that's going in just north of Los Angeles for mountain lions and bobcats and other species, it's a sign to me that humanity finally gets that it's impacting nature and essentially impacting us. Yeah, where my mother lives and where I grew up in Richmond, they close the road every year in spring to allow the toads to migrate from one part of the woodland on one side (laughs) to the common land on the other side. And there's a sign that says, toads migrating. And I've always thought that's the kind of world that I want to live in, the one in which wildlife is offered safe passage. But yeah. has it not gone too far, at least at the southern end of Yellowstone to Yukon, not just in terms of linear infrastructure, but what about um, a combination of suburban sprawl and also agricultural sprawl, fencing, for example? How can wildlife move through a, a farmed landscape? Well, those are challenges that we face for sure. And I would say that COVID, one of the impacts of COVID is that we had people moving from highly urbanized environments, buying parcels of land that we knew were had a conservation priority in order to get away from COVID. And we often see places like Montana, Wyoming, Idaho as sort of 
promoted as like the best lifestyles. And so understandably, people want to move there. I think the challenge that we face in the Southern Rockies is that it's not intensive development where cities are compact and really livable and walkable. It's really sprawling types of development. Everybody wants a house next to a river, like in uh, the movie, A River Runs Through It, that Robert Redford did. And unfortunately, they're not sharing the landscape, either with other people or with nature. And so our job is to help direct that development because actually human lives are better if they're not having to drive and commute all the time and to make sure that those uh, passages for wildlife stay open. We're really fortunate that ranchers, for the most part, are really, uh, I think they have a very strong land ethic. So if you take Montana, for example, that Montana constitution is the strongest environmental constitution out of the 50 states. It was written by ranchers. And so we see ranchers who are really proud of the prairie chicken leks, the pronghorn migrations, et cetera. We see ranchers who are putting in what they call lay down fences that allow for elk to migrate, but um, don't impact their fences, but and also don't get the elk tangled up. And then, you know, I think the other challenge we face with ranchers is that by the time cows came to Montana, there were no large predators, right? And so there's no memory within families of practicing good husbandry, keeping wildlife and carnivores separate of sheep and cattle. And so one of the efforts that we really need as a society is to support those ranchers to be really awesome and and extraordinary ranchers coexisting with large carnivores. And there's lots of different tools and approaches that can be tailored to their ranch and really help them to diminish any wildlife-human conflicts. And that's a really important part. And I think for the most part, ranchers are game. They're often very land-rich, but cash-poor. And so part of what we have to do is make sure they have the resources to do their work right. So, so taking that piece by piece, I mean, have you been watching the series Yellowstone that everyone loves here in London? Because, of course, that's about um, a, a ranching family that is railing and fighting and struggling against urban sprawl and development of the land around their ranch and attempts by developers to take their land. So is that yes. a reasonably accurate portrayal in which the environmentalists and the ranchers are united in trying to prevent this unsustainable sprawling development? <laughs> Well, absolutely. Ranchers, because they have such a strong conservation ethic, they want to keep their ranches intact over the long term. They, you know, Many of them don't want to see it subdivided, but they're often forced to do that in order to retire because, you know, in many cases, ranching has gotten a lot harder and kids are leaving leaving the West and going elsewhere. So they don't have a choice. But are the, are, are the conservation groups also not actively acquiring those ranches that are going out of business? I mean, we talked to yeah. Alison Fox of American Prairie Reserve, but yeah. what about further West? I mean, Nature Conservancy is, is part of corridor building, not about acquiring and rewilding ranches. Yeah, so within particular corridors where we know wildlife either already move or are predicted to move, one of the strategies is how to work with voluntary private land conservation, 
One strategy is outright buying land. Another is conservation easements on land that restricts development permanently. And another is working with ranchers on different kinds of tools that enable them to maintain their livelihoods, keep their land intact, and allow wildlife to move through. So there's a suite of tools that can be used across any particular private lands. And then on the subject of fencing, what about these new technological solutions that involve collars? I use them in my place in Somerset. We have longhorn cattle, they wear collars. We don't have physical fencing. The collar tells the animal exactly where the boundary is with a bleep and then a vibration. And if they go through the boundary, then, then a shock. Isn't that a game changer for both conservation, corridor building, and also ranching? Well, it'd be incredible. It's really expensive. (laughs) So I think that's something over time. And the other thing is, is when you look at the amount of fencing across landscapes, it's immense. So there are a lot of groups that get out there and voluntarily work to remove fencing that no longer is necessary to make sure that wildlife aren't getting tangled. And there's also um, approaches that we can take to um, design fences or even modify fences so that wildlife can use them better. So for example, pronghorn, the world's or North America's fastest land mammal, used to be chased by cheetah back in the day, they can't jump. They're fast, but they can't jump. So they have to go under fences. And if that bottom wire is too low, they can't do it. And if it's barbed, it can have impacts on them. So if we can move that wire up a little bit and make it smoother, that can help. And likewise, you know, if the top wire is too high, that can also have an impact on wildlife. So if fencing is determined to be the way, then there are options to fix fences. But if we could just get fences off the landscape, that would be incredible. I'm just going to offer that for those people that ranch bison, bison are a really tough animal. They're tough enough to keep inside of fences. You know, they they always say that bison will let you take them wherever they want to go. And so I'm not sure a slight shock would work for a stampeding herd of bison, but maybe for more tame critters, that kind of thing would work. So let's talk about bison. Can we dare to dream of a future in which bison are able to move up and down the Yellowstone to Yukon Corridor? Wild bison, not ranched ones. Yeah, it's so exciting. Leroy Littleberry is a a Blackfoot confederacy tribal member and he sort of he always says to me you know why do why is our vision it's about having bison up and down the why do why region and that's actually happening so we've just seen a reintroduction of bison into banff national park and it's been five years and it's been wildly successful down in Blackfoot country, they're in the transboundary region of the U.S. and Canada, so between Alberta and Montana. The Blackfoot Confederacy has a vision that they call the Any Initiative, which means bison in Blackfoot language, and it's about free-roaming bison across that transboundary area. And so they're, they've already brought bison into the landscape, and they're working on piecing it together. And for them, it's really about cultural restoration, wild restoration, re- restoration of language, restoration of health, and many other things. It's incredibly cool. So we are seeing that happening. And just to the east of the Yellowstone to Yukon region, is the American Prairie Reserve. And we're already seeing animals like grizzly bears who once were sort of, you know, they're, they're actually kind of not necessarily mountain species as we think of them today. And they're, of course, moving into the plains and even hibernating in the, into the plains. And wouldn't it be cool if that whole landscape was 
able to host a variety of these large mammals and carnivores. So what's the population trend then? So with bison, it's clearly increasing because of these reintroductions against the wishes of elements of the ranching industry. And I see the governor Gianforti of Montana's attorney general waging a bitter rearguard action to prevent the recovery of bison on, on federally owned land. But the numbers are still rising. And with support from the federal government, it seems like reintroductions will be accelerating in the near future. What about other species? I mean, are pronghorn going up in number, elk, moose, uh, uh, and of course the carnivores, lynx, wolves and bears. What's the trend? Yeah, when you look at the Yellowstone to Yukon region, I think some of the biggest successes have been the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone. And we know that they're actually moving from Yellowstone north and, and sort of meeting their cousins to the north. Grizzly bears, they were once 150 miles separated. So the only isolated population of grizzly bears that survived during uh, the time that we were really killing off predators was a very small population in Yellowstone National Park. Today, it has really recovered. It's spilling well beyond its bounds. And um, those populations, due to the efforts of so many different groups, are now about maybe, depending on who you're talking to, maybe about 40 miles apart. Our job is to reduce that gap and keep that connectivity open forever. Likewise, I remember Chris Servine, he was the grizzly bear recovery coordinator, and he told Yellowstone to Yukon and others, you know, if you want to see wolves into Idaho, which is the Idaho wildlands is the biggest wildland in the lower 48 states. And it's a, re it's a recovery zone for grizzly bears, but there is no viable population there right now. But he said, if you want to do that, you have to work in this place called the Salmon Selway or the Cabinet Purcell Mountain Corridor area. And there was one population in Montana that was reduced to 10 individuals. And so with a group of 60 entities, federal agencies, state agencies, that population went up to about 60 individuals. We thought it was going to have to be about 100, but they've already started to move. And so several of those individuals have actually moved into the Idaho wildlands. Now, unfortunately, they're all males. Don't take this personally, but males don't really count. And so ultimately is a much slower movement of females because female cubs tend to set up a home range right next to their mom. So it, getting them further south will take time. Can we talk for a moment on a kind of even bigger scale I mean, what are the chances that wildlife from the western side of North America could make it back to the eastern side? For example, cougars have been extirpated for 120, 130 years from the eastern side of North America. And as a result, you have exploding populations of white-tailed deer and all kinds of attendant issues around road accidents and uh, Lyme disease and, and the hollowing out of, of the forests of New England. What are the chances of landscape-scale connectivity to the east and also to the south down into California? Is that a feasible prospect? That's so funny. I don't know if you've read Kim Stanley Robinson's book. He puts Y2Y in there as a solution to climate change. And he says, not only is Y2Y done, which would be so beautiful, but now there are tendrils moving out to California and to the East Coast that have been reestablished. So, yeah, so I think a lot of people think about that vision. 
what's really exciting is we have seen mountain lions already moving to the east all the way into Connecticut, I believe. Uh, one individual survived. And we do see wolves moving from the Rockies into Northern California, like Modoc County. So is it possible? Absolutely. I mean, we know, you know, you, and you're from Europe, so you know this better than I do probably, but in Spain, they're having a massive rewilding. And we know that wolves will exist wherever we allow them to exist. And same with grizzly bears. And so it really is a combination of them needing their food sources, but probably the bigger factor is human tolerance. And that's a cultural piece. And it's about, you know, like my vision in Why to Why, it's people realize that this is the most intact mountain landscape in the world and the highest and best good for this place is to allow nature to flourish in the long term. So that means that those of us that live in this region need to live here with pride. And I think right now, a lot of people live here, they appreciate the open space, but they don't realize that it's also a global gem. And there are significant cultural obstacles in the United States that don't exist in the same way in Europe any longer. Remember the, the German scientist Max Planck said once that science advances one funeral at a time. And there is a kind of dark humor in that truth here in Europe that, that those who are still poisoning and shooting wolves tend to be in their 70s or 80s. It's just a culture that is dying out. But we read here in the press all the time about, for example, Utah allowing unlimited uh, license-free killing of cougars. There's a, currently the bill that's going through the Utah legislature that will allow that. And of course, the attitudes in Montana towards wolves. Governor Jim Forte himself killed a wolf. So what chance of a more harmonious relationship, particularly with carnivores in the western side of, of the United States? Oh, Ben, I am the cup is half full kind of person. Same here. And yeah. And so what we've found at Y2Y is it's really about working with communities. So whether it's a far right or a far left community, it turns out that we share almost all of the same values around nature. And I remember working with um, some Tea Party county officials who were really gung-ho about a new wilderness area and because they could see the benefit to their community and it's what their community wanted. And so I think, you know, we're always going to see reactionary politics, but I think if we get rid of that noise and we look at the trend, I think there's actually a lot of commonality among humanity that we need nature. And of course, it was it was the original conservation movement in the United States was initiated under Republican President Roosevelt. Absolutely. And, and Nixon is remembered for other things, but it was Nixon who introduced the Environmental Protection Agency, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. So it is yeah. possible to build bipartisan consensus. And we see a bit of it in Florida, I guess, with the Florida Wildlife Corridors Act and some of the Everglades yes. restoration work. So I agree with you. There's room for optimism. But when we see here in Europe, the residue of the killing culture in Scandinavia in particular, Sweden, Norway, massacring their wolves and lynx and, and, and similar things being said of the northwestern part of the United States, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking. But um, Jody, you're doing unbelievable work. I'm so lucky to spend this time chatting to you. I'm such a fan of, of Yellowstone to Yukon. I really hope to visit that part of the world sometime. And I look forward to your newsletters. I really urge anyone listening to this to sign up to the newsletters from Yellowstone to Yukon to make donations, to support, to go and visit. You will not be disappointed. This is one of the world's coolest rewilding projects. Well, thank you, Ben. And you are welcome to come visit anytime. We'd love to get you out on the landscape.
being from Britain, it's hard for me to get my head around the scale of the Yellowstone to Yukon project. And I think one of the most exciting things about it is that it's being replicated elsewhere. Algonquin to Adirondacks on the other side of North America, for example. I'm really grateful to Jody for taking the time to tell me about this um, unbelievable plan and, uh, and I look forward to following progress. Please do go on to whatever platform you use for listening to podcasts and leave us a review, spread the word among your friends and so on. Next time, we're going to be talking to Steve Micklewright of Trees for Life. Steve and his team are at the forefront of a massive rewilding effort in the Scottish Highlands. Do join us.